0: Good morning again everyone. My name is DJ. I'm the church pastor here at Parker Ford. It's so good to have you with us. We're going to continue in our series uh, on living in this story, living in his story, the story of Jesus this morning and looking at the Torah. I originally had three weeks set aside for the Torah and then one of those weeks I was sick. So I'm, i I kind of reworked what I was thinking for this morning, but I'm excited. I, th- I think that um, it's going to be a good morning. So I'm going to start in the natural place Uh, in the scripture of Acts chapter 7. Okay, so if you want to follow with me, you can turn to Acts 7. Would you stand uh, with me, if you're physically able, um, for the reading of the word? It's a long chapter. This is uh, right at the beginning of the story of the church in Acts. And... um, This is right after the first deacons are chosen, and Stephen is described as a man filled with the Holy Spirit, and he does miraculous works, and he gets in trouble uh, with those in power. So chapter 7 is picking up where he is standing before uh, a court, a trial, and listen uh, to how he preaches the gospel. Listen to how Stephen preaches the gospel. I'm going to read from the NLT because it's a little more dynamic. Uh, for a passage this long. So this is Acts chapter 7, verse 1. Then the high priest asked Stephen, are these accusations true? This was Stephen's reply. Brothers and fathers, listen to me. Our glorious God appeared to our ancestor Abraham in Mesopotamia before he settled in Haran. God told him, leave your native land and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. So Abraham left the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran until his father died. Then God brought him here to the land where you now live. But God gave him no inheritance here, not even one square foot of land. God did promise, however, that eventually the whole land would belong to Abraham and his descendants, even though he had no children yet. God also told him that his descendants would live in a foreign land where they would be oppressed as slaves for 400 years. But I will punish the nation that enslaves them, God said. And in the end, they will come out and worship me here in this place. God also gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision at that time. So when Abraham became the father of Isaac... He circumcised him on the eighth day and the practice was continued when Isaac became the father of Jacob and when Jacob became the father of the 12 patriarchs of the Israelite nation. These patriarchs were jealous of their brother Joseph, and they sold him to be a slave in Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles, and God gave him favor before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God also gave Joseph unusual wisdom so that Pharaoh appointed him governor over all of Egypt and put him in charge of the palace. But a famine came upon Egypt and Canaan. There was great misery and our ancestors ran out of food. Jacob heard that there was still grain in Egypt, so he sent his sons, our ancestors, to buy some. The second time they went, Joseph revealed his identity to his brothers and they were introduced to Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent for his father Jacob and all his relatives to come to Egypt, 75 persons in all. So Jacob went to Egypt. He died there, as did our ancestors. Their bodies were taken to Shechem and buried in the tomb Abraham had bought for a certain price from Hamor's sons in Shechem. At the time... As the time drew near when God would fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt greatly increased. But then a new king came to the throne of Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph. This king exploited our people and oppressed them, forcing parents to abandon their newborn babies so they would die. At that time, Moses was born, a beautiful child in God's eyes. His parents cared for him at home for three months. When they had to abandon him, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and raised him as her own son. Moses was taught all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was powerful in both speech and action. One day, when Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his relatives, the people of Israel. He saw an Egyptian mistreating an Israelite, so Moses came to the man's defense and avenged him, killing the Egyptian. Moses assumed his fellow Israelites would realize that God had sent him to rescue them. But they didn't. The next day he visited them again and saw two men of Israel fighting. He tried to be a peacemaker. Men, he said, you are brothers. Why are you fighting each other? But the man in the wrong pushed Moses aside. Who made you a ruler and judge over us, he asked. Are you going to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard that, he fled the country and lived as a foreigner in the land of Midian. There his two sons were born. Forty years later in the desert near Mount Sinai, an angel appeared to Moses in the flame of a burning bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. As he went to take a closer look, the voice of the Lord called out to him, I am the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses shook with terror and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off your sandals for you are standing on holy ground. I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groans. I have come down to rescue them. Now go, for I am sending you back to Egypt. So God sent back the same man his people had previously rejected when they demanded, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Through The angel who appeared to him in the burning bush, God sent Moses to be their ruler and savior. And by means of many wonders and miraculous signs, he led them out of Egypt through the Red Sea and through the wilderness for 40 years. Moses himself told the people of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. Moses was with our ancestors, the assembly of God's people in the wilderness when the angel spoke to him at Mount Sinai and there Moses received life-giving words to pass on to us. But our ancestors refused to listen to Moses. They rejected him and wanted him to return to Egypt. They told Aaron, "...make us some gods who can lead us, for we don't know what has become of this Moses who brought us out of Egypt." So they made an idol shaped like a calf, and they sacrificed to it and celebrated over this thing that they had made. Then God turned away from them and abandoned them to serve the stars of heaven... As their gods, in the book of the prophets it is written. Was it to me you were bringing sacrifices and offerings during those 40 years in the wilderness, Israel? No, you carried your pagan gods, the shrine of Molech and the star of of your god, Rephan. And the images you made to worship them, so I will send you into exile as far away as Babylon. Our ancestors carried the tabernacle with them through the wilderness. It was constructed according to the plan God had shown to Moses. Years later, when Joshua led our ancestors in battle against the nations that God drove out of this land, the tabernacle was taken with them into their new territory, and it stayed there until the time of King David. David found favor with God and asked for the privilege of building a permanent temple for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who actually built it. However, the Most High doesn't live in temples made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Could you build me a temple as good as that? Asked the Lord. Could you build me such a resting place? Didn't my hands make both heaven and earth? You stubborn people. You are heathen at heart and deaf to the truth. Must you forever resist the Holy Spirit? That's what your ancestors did, and so do you. Name one prophet your ancestors didn't persecute. They even killed the ones who predicted the coming of the righteous one, the Messiah, whom you betrayed and murdered. You deliberately disobeyed God's laws, even though you received it from the hands of angels. The Jewish leaders were infuriated by Stephen's accusation, and they shook their fists at him in rage. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed steadily into heaven and saw the glory of God. And he saw Jesus standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. And he told them, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. Then they put their hands over their ears and began shouting. They rushed at him and dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. His accusers took off their coats and laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. As they stoned him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He fell to his knees shouting, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. And with that, he died. Would you sing with me? We exalt thee. We exalt. the scriptures and the story of those who have gone before us and the way they point to Jesus, it is meant to lead us to a place of exalting you. Fathers, we engage your word this morning. As we think about what it means that the Torah points us to Christ. As we learn from Stephen's example, how do you preach the gospel? (laughs) In this case, you tell the story of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, and the people in the wilderness. Father, teach us to be a people of the Word, who consume your Word and feast on your Word. Teach us to be a people who learn and grow and are rooted and grounded in your Word. Most of all, teach us to be a people of the living Word of God, your Son, who is the Word, the eternal Word of God. We bless you. We read this, and we sing this, and we pray this in Jesus' victorious name. And all God's people said, amen. You can be seated, and you might be feeling a little bit like the Pharisees and angry at me for making you stand that long. Please do not stone me. I would appreciate that. All right, from Abraham to the door of the promised land, we're going to be looking at the story of Jesus in the Torah. In Christ your story, this is where we ended last week. In Christ, your story has been woven into the fabric of his story. Your story is no longer your own. In Christ, like the lives of those we read about in the scriptures, our lives are, being, are part of a grander, all-encompassing story of God. It is the story of his son, Jesus Christ, that is being told in our daily lives. And so over and over again, what I want to teach throughout this series is as we learn to see the story of Jesus in the scriptures, starting with the Old Testament, and then looking at his life through the Gospels, that you can look at your own life and look at the lives of of those in your life, in in our congregation, those we walk with, and see God at work and see his story at work. Throughout 2020, we're focusing on the life of Jesus as a foundation of this series, We're spending the first several months of the year looking at Jesus and the Hebrew Scriptures. I agree fully with the Bible Project. uh, I've talked about that, that the Scriptures are a unified story that leads us to Jesus. So when we see the stories of those in the Torah, it leads us to Jesus. And we just saw that, didn't we? In Acts chapter 7, what were those stories meant to point Israel towards? Jesus, the story of God's Son. This morning we're continuing to look at the Torah and the story of Christ in the first five books of the Hebrew Scriptures. All right, the Torah, also known as the Pentateuch or the Book of Moses, is made up of the first five books of the Hebrew Scriptures, including Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. These are the English names of the five books and differ slightly from the Jewish names for each of the books, which are really interesting. So I want to look at the Jewish names. Um, Genesis is in the beginning. The Jewish title is in the beginning, which is slightly different, Just, just a little different nuance. Genesis is like the start of something. But the Jewish name for it in the beginning means it wasn't actually, when we pick up and read in the beginning God created, it's not actually the first thing that happens. Because long before God created, he was already in perfect relationship with himself. He had already made a plan. He had already seen the cosmos in his imagination. And so even before he speaks it into creation, God is already existent and already at work. So I like that. There's a slight nuance there. It's in the beginning. It's our beginning. It's not God's beginning. So in the beginning. Um, This comes from uh, a rabbi, Manus uh, Friedman. Uh, from time to time, I like to uh, see what uh, rabbinic teaching is on things because they've been studying the Hebrew scriptures, uh, you know, from, from the beginning. And so um, this rabbi, I was listening to him uh, teach on the Torah this week, and he said each of the, uh, the books of the Torah ask a different question. I thought this was a good insight. He says the book of Genesis asks the question, who? Who is involved in God's work? And so the book of Genesis, one of the main questions is asked is who? So what does the book of Genesis teach us? Who is the cast of characters that God lays out? Who is it? In his work in the world. Adam and Eve, so male and female, all humans. And then specifically who? What's that? Yeah, God himself. And then which specific human family is he going to initiate his his, uh, work through? Yeah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And by the end of Genesis, the, the people uh, of that family, 75 persons are in Egypt. So the book of Genesis is asking the question, who? Exodus, um, the Jewish name for this book is The Names Of. The Names Of, that's the, that's the Jewish name. And it asks the question, where? What are many que- or What are many of the chapters in Exodus once the plagues are done and once they end up at Mount Sinai? You know, the... The real thrust of the book of Exodus, it's exciting to think of it as being all about escaping Egypt, but that's not the point of the book, the core of it. The core of the book is coming to Mount Sinai and meeting with God. The whole point of leaving Egypt was so that they could go and meet and worship God in the way that he was calling them to. So where are they taught that God's presence resides? Tabernacle, specifically where in the tabernacle? In the Holy of Holies on the mercy seat, on the mercy seat. So um, in many ways, the, the book of Exodus points us to where, where do we interact with God? We interact with God in the holy place and according to Exodus in the tabernacle. And who's allowed in there? High priest once a year? It's very exclusive. Could you and I have gone in there now? Leviticus, the Jewish name for the book of Leviticus, is called. And it asks the question, how? So what sits right the center two chapters of the book of Leviticus? What's the practice that's initiated there? Do you remember? The What's that? The Day of Atonement. Very good. The Day of Atonement sits at the very center. So... Um, What does the Day of Atonement teach us? What what happened on the Day of Atonement? There were two animals, right? Two goats. This was the day that the the priest, the high priest, would have gone into the Holy of Holies. There's two uh, goats. One is killed and sacrificed for the sins of the people. What happens with the other one? It's the scapegoat. It's called the scapegoat. And the priest lays his hands on the goat, right? And he confesses what over it? All the sins, all the sins of the people, he confesses the sins of the people on the goat, and then he sends it out into the wilderness where it would die, where it would be alone. So the book of Leviticus is is answering the question how how are we to interact with this holy and awesome God? Leviticus is also where it says that the life is in the blood, and uh, it draws that concept into the sacrificial language. Book of uh, Numbers. The, the uh, Jewish name for it is In the Wilderness. This is a really good name. Um, Numbers is not a great name for it because it just makes you think of endless lists and probably you don't want to read it because there's endless lists there. But the, the Jewish name for it is In the Wilderness because where do they spend, where does the entire book of Numbers take place? In the wilderness. In the wilderness. And there's all of these crazy stories that happen. That's where the story of Balaam is and the talking donkey. It's where the the, um, serpents are striking the people and uh, the poisonous serpents are biting the people and they're dying. And so uh, Moses raises up a bronze serpent and they have to look at it after they get bit by a snake. And then what does Jesus say about that? He says, just like the serpent was raised in, in the wilderness, the son of man must be lifted up, right? And when we look at him... Even though we've been bitten by death and sin, when we look at Christ and gaze upon him and receive his salvation, what happens? Healing. So the book of Numbers asks the question, when? Throughout this whole time that the people are, are wandering in the wilderness, they're asking God, when can we enter in? When can we enter in? We know that for 40 years they had to wait. And Deuteronomy, the Jewish name for it, is the words. And this one uh, asks the question, how do you live in God's kingdom? It's the second telling of the law. Uh, Moses retells the law. It's right before he dies. It's when the people, after 40 years of wandering, are on the precipice of entering into the promised land. And so uh, Moses retells the law that was received on Mount Sinai. And really, it's about the establishment of God's kingdom. All right, so why should we read the Torah? I have three points for you today. Point number one, the Torah reveals the glory, power, and sovereignty of God. Can you read that with me? The Torah reveals the glory, power, and sovereignty of God. Number two, read this with me. The Torah paints an accurate picture of how bad and messy things really are and causes us to ask, how will God fix this mess? And the third point I have is, read it with me, the Torah leaves us longing for the kingdom of God to be fully realized. I believe if you read, if you immerse yourself in the first five books of the scriptures, um, and, and you really give yourself to seeking God and learning from God, he's going to reveal his glory and power and sovereignty to you through that. You're going to be left with some really messy questions. How is he going to fix all this? Because it is a mess. And it leaves you longing, longing to see the fulfillment of this beautiful kingdom that he describes. All right, so point number one, the Torah reveals the glory, power, and sovereignty of God. How does the Torah reveal God's character? Well, these are just a few ways. The the Torah reveals God's character through the majesty of his creation right away. Right away, we read about God's creation. And what is the descriptor of it over and over again? It is good. And then on the seventh day, when he rests, what does he say about it? It's very good. It's not just good, it's very good. Creation reveals the majesty of God. You go up on a mountain, you go on a hike, you go to the ocean. All the heavens, you look at the stars, the heavens declare the glory of God. So the Torah reveals God's character through the majesty of his creation. It reveals it through the holiness of God. Right away in the Torah we see that our God is a holy God. He's not like the other gods. He's not like the gods of Egypt. He's not like the pagan gods that Abraham would have served before God called him. He's not a God that demands child sacrifice, teaches that to Abraham, brings his son up onto the mountaintop, and then says, no, I provide. It teaches that God is totally different. He is El Shaddai, God Almighty, as he reveals to Abraham. He is Yahweh, I am, as he reveals to Moses. So the Torah reveals the holiness of God. It reveals um, that through the Lord's... uh, it reveals God's character through the Lord's patient pursuit of his people. Generation after generation, God is patiently pursuing his people, even as they rebel and reject him. And that's true for us today. Amen? God continues. We just sang it, right? There's no wall you won't kick down, wall you won't tear down, come after me. God patiently and relentlessly pursues his people, and we learn this in the Torah. Um, And we learn about God's character through his faithfully fulfilled promises. Like in um, Genesis, uh, Stephen quotes it in his speech. In Genesis 15, God says to Abraham, your children will go to a foreign land and be slaves for 400 years. And that happens. It happens in the Torah. God fulfills his promises, but then they'll come out and they'll be led. And God fulfills that promise. Abraham, you'll have a son. He waits 30 years, but God fulfills His promises. And even when the promises seem like they aren't fulfilled, they're fulfilled in Christ, as it says in Hebrews 11, and it lists all the saints. All of these have gone before us and didn't receive what was promised to them, but we have. We are the fulfillment of the promises given to them. We exist in the fulfillment of the promises given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which is amazing. All right. We also learned, point number two, that the Torah paints an accurate picture of how bad and messy things really are and causes us to ask, how will God fix this mess? Things seem to go from bad to worse. Adam and Eve eat the fruit and are kicked out of the garden, and then their son uh, murders their other son. It escalates quickly. By chapter six, by chapter six, the entire world is in such chaos that God destroys all things through the flood. By chapter 6, things are so bad that it says that there was no one righteous. All men's hearts were completely twisted and, and obsessed with evil and doing evil. And that's the story of Noah and the flood. Abraham is found righteous, but what does he do? He also commits adultery. And he also lies multiple times, and he also doesn't trust God. Isaac plays favorites, which creates all sorts of generational messes. Jacob is a deceiver. I don't know, you read the story of Jacob, it makes me want to punch him sometimes. He's such a punk. He's a deceiver. And he plays favorites with his kids too, which creates a whole nother mess with Joseph. Joseph is really, really conceited. You ever read the beginning of that story and his dreams and how he just gloats over his brothers with those dreams? Man, I know if I were his older brother, uh, that'd be hard. Moses commits murder. We just read about that in Stephen's speech. The Israelites continually complain, choose disobedience, think about the golden calf and many other incidents, and refuse. They refuse. They refuse to enter into the promised land. It was an entire generation that said no to God, saying, come in to my abundance. We do that all the time. (laughs) God is saying to us, come in to my abundance. And every time we reject the freedom of Jesus and the Spirit of God, we are saying no to entering in to his rest. In short, things are really bad by the end of the Torah. With each passing generation, the reader asks Will the promise be fulfilled? Each generation falls short, but still God works. By the end of Deuteronomy, the people of Israel are ready to enter the land, and we are left wondering, is this the moment when things will finally go well? And the answer is, no, kind of, no. It stays messy. stays really, really messy. Will the people obey God and build the kingdom? We're left with that question at the end of the Torah. All right, third point. The Torah leaves us longing for the kingdom of God to be fully realized. We're left with a number of kingdom of God questions uh, by the end of the Torah. How will the promised blessing of Abraham spread to the whole earth? How will that happen? Will Israel fulfill the Mosaic covenant? They've already been rejecting it for an entire generation, but will they fulfill it? Will Israel be a kingdom of priests? When God gave the Mosaic law, the covenant, he declared that his people, the Israelites, would be a kingdom of priests. Are they actually going to live that out? Just like the tribe of Levi, the Levites were the priests to the entire nation. So the nation of Israel was to be priests to the entire world. Just like Levites would lead the nation into the tabernacle, into worship of God, so the Israelites as a whole were meant to lead the entire earth into worship of the one true God. Will all the nations be drawn to the true God? All of these questions come when we're asking, uh, when we're reading uh, the Torah. All right. So the Torah reveals the glory, and power, and sovereignty of God. How is this ultimately fulfilled? We've been hitting Colossians one a lot recently, and in Colossians one it says this: that Christ is the image of the invisible God. Jesus fulfills this. He is the perfect. Fulfillment of the character of God. He is the image of the invisible God. The Torah paints an accurate picture of how bad and messy things really are and causes us to ask, How will God fix this mess? God, it says in Colossians 1, God is reconciling all things both in heaven and on earth through His Son. How does God address the brokenness and the pain that we're left with in the Torah? Through His Son. And finally, the Torah leaves us longing for the kingdom of God to be fully realized. Jesus is the prophet better than Moses. He is the priest more perfect than Melchizedek. And he is the king of kings. Homework for you. If you're taking notes, write this down. This week, read Deuteronomy 17 in light of Jesus being the true king. All right? So go home this week and read Deuteronomy chapter 17 in light of Jesus being the king. Can you do that? Not too hard. All right. Every sermon with three points has to have a poem. So I wrote a poem for you. You ready? The Torah teaches the power of God, how good he is, and reveals his great love. The Torah leaves us wanting more and forces us to ask, what is this all for? The Torah leaves us longing for Christ, the Messiah God, the world's only true light. The Torah teaches us our place and our lack of hope apart from his grace. The Torah sets us on the road of waiting and seeking for the Lord. If not for these ancient stories, there would be no context for the revealing of Christ's marvelous glory. The Torah sets the stage for Jesus to be who he is. Without it, there's no context for the specific place and time and people he came to. And so, if you want to know Jesus, if you want to serve Jesus, then learn the Torah, learn the scriptures, learn the context of the story. It's worth it because as you read it in light of Christ, there are parts of his character that will just open up in amazing ways. All right, I, I was—that was kind of tongue-in-cheek that I did—I did that, but I hope it, I hope it illustrated <laughs> well. All right, so what? So what, DJ? Let's read Colossians chapter one. Can you uh, stand again? Let's stand again, and let's read this out loud together. This is an up-down morning. Alright, here we go. Colossians chapter 1, let's read it together, starting in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, All things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together, and He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And the people of God in this sanctuary clapped and said, thank you, God, for your song. All right, you can be seated. If you're going to memorize one scripture this year, memorize this one. 2020, if you're going to memorize one, we, more than any other generation in the history of Earth, we have untrained our minds to memorize things. How many phone numbers, current phone numbers, do you have memorized? I've got two mine and my wife's. When I was a kid, when I was like 14, I had like 30 memorized. I know you had more than that. Listen, Take the time, memorize this scripture, make it a part of who you are. This is a creed. (laughs) This This is who Jesus is. See all of life through this filter. Can you do that? All right. In Christ, our lives, not just the Torah, in Christ, our lives reveal the glory, power, and sovereignty of God. Because Christ is the image of the invisible God. And so when we live with Christ, and his story is told within us, the glory, sovereignty, power, and character of God are revealed. Messy things, (laughs) our lives paint an accurate picture of how bad and messy things really are. Amen? Just like the Torah, our lives reveal how bad things are. And they cause us to ask, how will God fix this mess? Have you ever been at that point where you've looked inward and you've said, how can God possibly fix this mess? God is reconciling all things, both in heaven and on earth. Everything about you, in Christ, through the blood of the Lamb, God is reconciling you to the Father through his Son. And our lives should leave the world longing for the kingdom of God to be fully realized. Do you ever spend time with someone who's been with Jesus and you want that? (laughs) Whatever it is that they have, you want that? You want to be like that? I can think of a handful of people in my life that when I'm with them, I want to be like that. I want to walk with Jesus like that. This is how our lives are meant to be, just like the Torah is meant to leave us hungry for the kingdom of God to be realized. Our lives are meant to be that for the world, so that we live with Christ in such a way that you leave your neighbors, your family, those you interact with, your coworkers, hungry for Jesus. Receive that family of God. Receive that. Receive that today. Receive it. Take it. Own it. Let your life be a living sacrifice to God. later in Colossians it says this and this is my closing point put on then as God's chosen ones you are God's chosen ones so put on then get dressed you wouldn't come out you wouldn't come to church naked would you? put on please don't ever do that put on then God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. What do we put on? How do we get dressed in this family? What's our clothing? Compassionate hearts. Jesus, yeah. <laughs> compassionate hearts. Kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another. Bearing with one another. Man, everything about our world right now Don't bear with one another. Disagree with people because they're different than you. No, no, no. Not in here. Not in this family. We bear with one another. Even though we have different views on different things, we bear with one another because Christ sits at the center. Not a political party. Not a socioeconomic family that we're a part of. That does not sit at the center of who we are. Christ sits at the center of who we are. So we bear with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive them. Forgive them. If you have a complaint against your brother or sister, forgive them. Because the Lord has forgiven you. So you must also forgive. And above all, above everything else, put on, and everybody says it, love. What does love do? It binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. Alright, we're all going to read verse 17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him do what? do some things do a little bit do everything it matters how you talk to your spouse it matters how you talk to your child it matters what you consume through the screens you watch it matters how you spend your church, just take a moment, be quiet before the Lord, give your life to him, give your words to him, give your thoughts to him, focus on the risen, resurrected, glorious king of kings, and say, my life belongs to you, my family belongs to you, everything belongs to you. this doesn't make you uncomfortable. I hope you feel this is a loving invitation. Paul wrote to his spiritual son, Timothy, my desire is for men in every church to lift their hands in prayer. So what I want to do to you is as we sing, we exalt thee. In our local church here, my desire is that every man, woman, and child,